Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. The national media reported extensively on the moratorium on evictions put into place as the COVID-19 pandemic emerged, first by the CARES Act and subsequently through the authority of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But less attention was paid to eviction moratoria put into place by almost every state and some localities. Now, variation in the timing and design of those state-level moratoria created a natural experiment allowing researchers to examine the effects of these moratoria. Eviction moratoriums don't only provide financial relief, they also relieve people from the stress of worrying about where they're going to live. So these policies can have a direct effect on people's mental health. How state eviction moratoria affected people's mental health is the topic of today's episode of A Health Podacy. I'm here with Abinasir Ali, a doctoral student in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Mr. Ali and his colleague George Wavy published a paper in the November 2022 issue of Health Affairs assessing the effects of state eviction moratoriums on mental health and found some evidence of improvement. We'll discuss these findings on today's episode. Mr. Ali, welcome to the program. Thanks, Alan. It's great to be with you. Thank you for taking some time talking about this important study that you conducted. Um, As I said in the introduction, we heard about the moratorium on evictions, but I don't know if everyone paid a lot of attention to the details or how they work, who's affected by them. Can you give me some sense of what an eviction moratorium tries to do? Uh, what What are the features of a moratorium on evictions? So before I talk about the eviction moratoriums, um, uh, first of all, eviction is a, is a legal process by which uh, landlords uh, remove tenants uh, from rental property. Um, and the eviction process varies from state to state and, and between jurisdictions within the same state. Um, uh, typically, the, the, the cost for eviction uh, varies, but it's usually based on non-payment of rent or uh, lease violations or criminal activity in the property. Um, so now the eviction uh, moratoriums prohibited uh, landlords from removing tenants uh, from residential property for non-payment of, of rent. Um, and also what is uh, important is that the justifications used uh, for these moratoriums were also different. Uh, the duration of the moratoriums were also different. Um, the source and the origin, the institutions that um, uh, put in place those moratoriums within the state were also different, uh, depending on what state we're talking about here. Um, so generally, those moratoriums were brought in place depending on where you are in the country and what state we're talking about. So the idea is someone falls behind on their rent. We know under COVID that a lot of people lost their job, lost their income. We want to make sure that they don't also lose their housing. Um, one of the dimensions along which some of these uh, vary is when in the process the moratorium takes effect. Um, Can you just say a little bit more about that? Like, is it right before you're about to get evicted? Is it long in advance as you start to fall behind in your payment? I'm just trying to think about if you're someone who's exercising this this right to not be evicted, how do you really know that, that you're covered? 
Yeah, so that, that's a great point. So, so the eviction uh, process is divided into five stages, typically. Um, what happens is that if an individual faced, pay, fails to pay rent on the fifth of the month, uh, the landlord typically places a notice on their door, uh, meaning that they have to pay up rent. Um, if um, within a certain amount of uh, number of days uh, the, the tenant doesn't pay, it's usually escalated. So the tenant uh, files uh, uh, eviction through the court system. It's a local jurisdiction. Um, so that's the stage two of the eviction process. And then we get to the third stage where a hearing is scheduled and actual hearing happens at the court. So that's the fourth stage, uh, the third stage, sorry. And then there's the fourth stage where a judgment is issued by a judge, um, uh, an eviction order. And then finally, the fifth stage of the process when uh, enforcement is done by either local police or a sheriff's office. So the eviction process um, is a legal process divided into those five stages. Uh, what these moratoriums did was, uh, depending on what state you were in, um, some state uh, stopped uh, evictions uh, from being uh, uh, notices, landlords from each putting notices on, on doors. Uh, some states targeted through the court process, the sort of the third and the fourth stage where uh, uh, they, they halted courts from holding hearings. And then finally, some states um, uh, targeted the fifth or the last stage during enforcement of the, the, the eviction, where they prevented uh, local police from uh, carrying out evictions. And the justifications that were used uh, for these moratoriums were different depending on the states you were in. Some states justified uh, these moratoriums uh, to prevent or to uh, reduce the spread of the virus. Uh, some states uh, justified using um, uh, the, the the economic uh, reason for it because um, a lot of people lost jobs and there were un the, and the unemployment numbers spiked. And so to keep people in their homes uh, due to economic uh, factors. Uh, some states used sort of that justification. Um, and then uh, these moratoriums, the way they were designed, uh, depended on what state you were in. Uh, some states um, were, you know, uh, used the legislature to put together these moratoriums. Some used the, the the executive branch of the state governments through the governor's office. And so uh, there were variations depending on where you are, what state you were in across the country. So this is really interesting to me. I mean, we we sort of heard this term, but what you're saying to me is that the way it plays out is actually quite variable. The rationale for it is variable. The 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 uh, legal authority to put it into place is variable. Um, let's turn to what you were trying to study in your paper. You're looking at uh, the mental health implications. So maybe before we get into the findings per se, you could just say a little bit about why you would expect there to be a connection between people's housing circumstances and uh, their mental health. So, so we know uh, that a lot about the relationship in, between unstable housing and, and mental health. Uh, so the risk of eviction, which is uh, as a result of uh, unstable housing, places tremendous uh, mental strain on, on the lives of affected individuals, right? Um, so um, unstable housing um, has tra traumatic effect on lives of affected individuals and families and, and usually leads to uh, worse mental health outcomes, including long-term stress and, and depression. Um, and unstable housing is also a big driver of homelessness and substance abuse among uh, vulnerable populations. Um, and, and so there are many studies that have shown the impact of um, sort of uh, unstable housing or evictions on our mental health. Um, more recently, uh, there are studies that have also shown that um, unstable housing patterns were also associated with um, higher rates of hospitalization, um, increased costs to, to the healthcare system. 
Um, and so when we were doing our literature review uh, for our study, uh, we found that, uh, you know, unstable housing, poverty, and mental health are all interrelated and, and drivers of disparity in, in health outcomes. Okay, so you've uh, you've laid the foundation here very clearly. We have a period where we put eviction moratoriums in place at different times in different states. We have an evidence base suggesting the critical relationship between stable housing and mental health. Uh, tell us what you found. Before our study, there were two other studies um, that looked at this topic um, uh, effect of evictions on uh, uh, eviction moratoriums on mental health um, in in twenty twenty. Uh, one study uh, uh, found declines in likelihood of African-American families uh, reporting feeling anxious or down, um, according to data from um, COVID-19 um, household per survey. Um, and then there was another interesting study, um, um, you know, before our study that uh, looked at moratoriums that blocked uh, notices uh, of eviction uh, by, by property owners. So sort of they looked at and evaluated what stages of eviction had more impact uh, on, on mental health. And, and what they found was that the evictions that targeted their early phases, meaning the, the notices of evictions that were that are put by uh, landlords uh, on tenants' properties, had more effect on it. Uh, and so th- th- these two studies were sort of um, uh, the, the precursor to our study, and 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 our study adds to this by we used a, a national uh, data from 2021 that looked at the association between those two, and we found that state eviction moratoriums were associated with. Um, uh, improvement in mental health. Um, and, and the estimates showed that there were uh, 0.4 fewer days not in good mental health uh, in, the, in the past uh, 30 days uh, among renters uh, with active state eviction moratoriums. Um, we also found um, eviction moratoriums were associated with, with the declines in the likelihoods of, of reporting frequent mental distress among renters by 1.3 percentage points. Um, so our study was much more comprehensive, and we used uh, a national uh, data uh, to look at uh, the, the impact of eviction moratoriums on, on mental health. Okay, so you find uh, that there's a positive effect on mental health. Um, I'd like to go into a little bit more of the detail of what you discovered and what the implications are. We'll have that conversation after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Abdin Nasir Ali, uh, who has written a paper on the effects of state eviction moratoriums on people who rent, uh, and particularly with a focus on the mental health of those renters. Uh, before the break, we got the top line results, which show a positive effect on mental health, which fits with what you might expect from the literature regarding uh, stability of housing. But I'd like to go a little deeper than just that top line. Um, In addition to sort of seeing the positive effect, I'm interested in uh, what you know about these renters and whether there were any differences depending on their demographic uh, characteristics. I'd also like to talk a little bit about the timing. You mentioned using national data, um, and I'd like to think about whether or not we have a sense of what the longer-term implications are. But why don't we start with uh, demographic characteristics? What do we know about these renters' characteristics and whether or not the implications were different based on those characteristics? Um, so we, we do observe that uh, uh, 
effects across all subgroups that we analyzed in our study. Um, the estimates um, was largest among non-Hispanic black people, about a 3.2 percentage point decline in the likelihood of uh, reporting frequent mental uh, distress. Um, among non-Hispanic white um, who rent, uh, the declines were a 1.1 percentage point uh, in the likelihood of uh, reporting frequent mental distress. And then for, for women, uh, we saw 1.4 percentage point decline in, in the likelihood of reporting uh, frequent uh, mental distress. And then we also analyzed uh, uh, groups by income as a percentage of uh, federal poverty level. And we found that all income groups saw declines in the likelihood of, of reporting uh, frequent mental distress. Okay, so these are broadly experienced benefits, although they do vary a bit by characteristic. Uh, let's talk just a bit about the time horizon, the dates of the moratoriums you were looking at, as well as the time period for the effects. Because I know one of the interesting questions will be whether these uh, benefits are long-lived or short-lived. Uh, we were able to observe these effects uh, when the moratoriums were in place um, in 2020. So obviously, this was a short-term effect. Uh, when when more data becomes available, we're hoping uh, it's one of the things we're trying to evaluate and find out whether uh, we'll be able to see those effects uh, through 2021. Uh, so our data was limited uh, to uh, to 20. 20, because that's the data we had available. Uh, one of the things we're looking at is trying to see uh, whether the effect would be sustained over uh, 2021. Well, it'll be very interesting to look at the longer uh, time horizon. And uh, just before we leave the topic of the findings, uh, you mentioned a few percentage point declines in various uh, uh, sources of mental or types of mental distress. I just wonder, based on your reading of the literature, the other studies you looked at, does this seem to you like a large effect? Is this something we should be really excited about? Or is it sort of, well, it's positive, but maybe not making that big a difference? Um, so that's a great question. Um, it's oh, it's oh, it's a positive. Um, um, I mean, we but we expected this because similar studies have also found uh, declines. Um, even though the, the the sample they used was very limited, uh, ours was a national uh, data. Um, it was a representative data set that we were working with. Um, and so I think what I will look out for is to see whether this would be sustained in 2021. I'd be very interested in, in you know, in looking at 2021. And, and I think um, that would really determine whether, I mean, this is a sustained a positive uh, outcome. Yeah, that would be very meaningful. Well, I'd like us to look forward a bit. Uh, it's great to see positive uh, mental health effects of any policy intervention, but presumably a a moratorium can't be permanent. Uh, at some point, people are going to have to be expected to pay rent. Um, so how do we take what you've learned here and think about what its implications are for public policy? Um, again, that's a great question, uh, Alan. Uh, I think these findings uh, do suggest that uh, policies that increase housing stability um, lower the cost of rent uh, and provide affordable housing to communities um, um, during crisis uh, would alleviate some sort of economic burden on, on those families uh, who are at risk of eviction. Um, and I think these uh, findings also do speak to the possibility of, of putting together uh, policies that will ultimately uh, improve the health and, and well-being of, of communities uh, by increasing the availability of, of rental units or providing other uh, interventions that reduce eviction risk. 
Um, and so, so more broadly speaking, I would say the findings suggest the, the importance of continuing to study the implications of, of different policies at the state level, uh, um, uh, especially uh, policies uh, that target housing by subsidizing housing for the poor um, and, and really uh, working towards improving the, the housing stability of, of vulnerable populations. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because as I was sitting here thinking about our conversation, the general goal of increasing stability of housing uh, is a is a topic that, that I would think would be of, of great interest to many. And you have positive effects from increasing stability. If we think of the moratorium not just as a moratorium, but as a single tool to increase housing stability, I wonder if you're uh, thinking about your own research, there are other dimensions of policies that could address that broader goal of stability that go beyond uh, the eviction moratorium. When I think about, um, and I've I've been doing housing research for the last two years now. Um, um, in in one of my um, uh, research areas is is housing in in residential stability, uh, especially among uh, vulnerable populations. Um, and I think one of the things that uh, and we and I think we allude to in our study, um, you know, is that. Um, you know, broadly, um, how uh, populations you know uh, that are affected by um, um, you know residential property um, really require um, help from government. Um, uh, subsidized housing, I think, is one area that you know could potentially help uh, people who are on the margins of our society. And 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 our study found the impact on health um, on on you know unstable housing. And so I think providing policies that 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 increase the number of housing units available to communities, particularly uh, areas that are deprived, I think would really improve um, uh, health outcomes in, in, in lower disparities among these communities. One other area that I think that um, the focus of policy should be, you know, subsidized housing should also play into into this. Generally, um, we're in, a clom- in, in an economic climate where now we talk about housing affordability as a big problem, you know, rising rents, uh, inflation, and sort of all these economic factors that are at play uh, usually affect uh, poor people, people who are of low income. And we've seen how that, you know, problems with unstable housing really affects um, uh, health and, and health increased health disparities uh, among these communities. Well, I really appreciate you broadening out the topic. Uh, that's uh, what it's going to take, I think, to see a sustained and significant movement in some of the indicators you mentioned. Uh, uh, Mr. Ali, thank you so much for the study, for uh, the thought and interpretation of the work you've done and the focus on such a critical issue. Uh, thank you for being my guest today on A Health Policy. Thank you, Alan. It's, it's been, I enjoyed being with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A 